I want you to have an almost perfect childhood. Not perfect, but close to it. I want you to have stuff that I didn't have when I was a kid. I want to look out the window in my house, in our house, watching you play on the playground. That's Daje Shelton. She's talking to her one-year-old son, Akeem. By the time Shelton was 17, she'd already lost many friends to gun violence. I'm Nancy Fowler. And I'm Willis Ryder-Arnold, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Losing friends was really tough on Deja Shelton. She had a caring mom, but few outlets for expressing her emotions around that trauma. In her world, fighting, not talking, was a typical way of working through conflict. Yeah, and then there was this one fight that actually led her to a new high school, a school of last resort. And that life, that change, is captured in a documentary film called For Akeem. For Akeem opens with Shelton in a courtroom. A judge gives her a last chance to graduate from high school after she's expelled following a fight with other students. Yeah, what's the name of that school? Innovative Concept Academy in St. Louis. Yeah, that's a really unique program. It's overseen by the St. Louis City Court System. And the goal is to educate and rehabilitate teenagers who have delinquency records. It's an interesting approach. Yeah, yeah. It's really, I I think, one of its kind in the country. We talked with Shelton and filmmaker Jeff Truesdale about the teenagers' efforts to negotiate school, friends' deaths, and an unexpected pregnancy. And what it was like to do all that under the glare of cameras. And we should tell you that there are some graphic descriptions of violence and also some strong language. We pick up our conversation with Truesdale telling us how he actually met Shelton. We were at someone's house late one Friday night. A couple of girls were braiding hair. And uh, Dasha just walked into the room. Two guys with cameras. She plopped down on the bed. They began talking about school, about boys. Dasha pulled up her shirt and pointed out where she had been shot. And it was oh, a wow. startling moment for those of us who are making the film, and it completely de- redirected our focus. About six months into the journey, we decided that Daje was the person we wanted to focus our story on. So, Daje, we want to know, you know, what happened um, that you were shot. But if you can just go start back a little before that. Well, tell us just a little bit about your life. When I started high school, like, I started off with a whole bunch of, like, friends and stuff like that. And so when I ended high school... I say, like, the majority of those people was dead, like, they was killed, shot, stuff like that. The majority? Yeah, like, most of them. Like, I hang out with boys. I'm a time boy where I used to be. So, like, most of the boys that I was growing up with and was, like, interacting with in school, sports and stuff like that, they had been shot. One was waiting for the bus stop. One was walking to the bu- uh, to the store for his mama. But the day I got shot... I had um, just came back from living with my aunt in Chicago, well, South Highland, Illinois. And we was all outside, and a lady had did something to my sister and my uh, cousin. So my auntie started fighting her. Then my mama ran down the street and was trying to get my auntie off the lady. And it was like two men came out of nowhere, and they started shooting. And I woke up, and I was, like, bloody and stuff Where like did they that. shoot you? In my stomach. I was already, like... Running and scary, so I blacked out, and I just woke up, and I was, like, bleeding and stuff. So they took me in the house, and they called. Well, the police was already there, so, yeah. 
It's come up a couple times that there was a kind of expectation or a concern that when, as you got older, friends of yours were going to die, and then that actually played out in reality. What was it like growing up with that in your mind, that people you know might die a violent death? It was scary, and it still is, because, like, where we live, if you turn, if you go backwards, you make a right. It's an area, like, where in the last two years, I say about nine people got killed right there, including a woman. It was about eight men and a woman, and one was our cousin. He got killed, like, a couple of months ago. In separate incidences? Yeah, separate incidences, like, just a couple of months apart, you know. But in two years, that's a lot of people in one spot, in one particular spot. So it's scary, but you say you get used to it. Well, I say I get used to it, but I don't, like, it's still, like, the same surprise and the same type of hurt when you see a person that you see every day, like, dead, like, laying on the ground. Like, then they probably could have saved a lot of their lives, but, you know, they don't really rush to... Stuff like that when it's in the inner city or it's a black person or something like that. So we looking at them. They bleed, they, they brains all over concrete, like all that type of stuff. Like that's traumatizing. Like Just imagine you walking out your house, going down the street to a store that you used to seeing a lot of your friends or your family at. And they be dead the next day. And they brains be spilling out, they blood be running down the street to a sewer because the they getting rinsed off the ground. Like, just imagine if y'all was going through stuff like that. You probably never seen it, you know. But I'm curious, how does that then affect your kind of relationship to something like school or your relationship to the police? Uh, the police? You want to know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. My family had a lot of run-ins with the police. I ain't saying that I don't like them. It's just I don't like the way they, you know what I'm saying, like handle Stuff like, because if they was in the county, they wouldn't handle a murder like or a death like that. Like, they'd be covering the person up or they have more respect for their body, but they don't even cover them up. They just be out laying on the ground. Like, people can walk up and take pictures. People walked up and took pictures of Mike Brown. They didn't care about that, that boy body laying out there that long. That was a long time. This boy blood was running down the street. For that's that's a long trail of blood for him to be out there that long, you know what I'm saying? But it's just like the level of respect they give black people in, in the city or in the county or whatever. Like they don't treat them the same. Like they feel like they don't have to. They don't. They don't care. Perception and bias is really a key theme in this film. We believe the story unfolds without politics, without an agenda. Um, but it's worth noting that um, the film was made by. Uh, a, a diverse group of filmmakers, white, black, male, female. Uh, the core filmmakers, the two directors and the two lead producers, including myself, obviously are white. And uh, we didn't approach this as white filmmakers looking at a black problem. We approached this as American filmmakers looking at a justice problem. And that problem is the over-incarceration of youth in America, which just happens to disproportionately affect black and brown kids. But what emerged in the story that we tell really is a couple of love stories, a love story between a teenage girl and a teenage boy, and then a more important love story between a mother and son. And that's what helps to make this incredibly universal and relatable on all levels. I'm curious, what actually brought you up to that moment where you walked into a room and there were camera crews and you just like sat down on the bed, as he said. <laughs> what was your first response to 
that moment to seeing the cameras and <laughs> that kind of experience? So she called me and told me to come over to help her finish braiding the girl hair. So I came over and I walked in the room. I was like, did you catfish somebody? Like, why are so many cameras in your room? She's like, nah, girl. And then I just sat down and we was talking. I never paid attention to the cameras even then. Like, I was just like, okay, whatever they there. So I'm going to still act the way I act. And what happened the next day at school after you walked into us with cameras rolling that night at your friend Zaria's house? Um, the next day, who came and got me out of class? Judge? I think the judge came and got me out of class. The judge? And, yeah, Jimmy Edwards. And he was like, so me, I want to talk to you. I was like, uh, what do I do now? Because <laughs> I was always in trouble. So we went downstairs, and I walked in the room. They was there, and we was talking for like, we talked for like three or four hours, and I was like letting everything out. Like, it felt like a therapy session. I was just letting everything go, and it just went from there. And when you say it went from there, what was that kind of conversation about? You said it was like a therapy session, but I'm curious, what were you talking about? We was talking about, like, me growing up and, like, the first time I got in trouble. I was in kindergarten. We were just talking about stuff like that and just talking about all events, like the most, I guess, traumatizing, important and stuff like that, events that happened in my life. After that, all stuff just began to just evolve. Like, I had a son. You want to know what you're having? Right here. What's that? It's a wee wee. <laughs> 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 yeah, baby, have a little boy. The Mike Brown event happened. Um, oh, the father of my oh, two man. children. They he went to the jail at seventeen and oh, stuff boy. like that. So it was just a lot of stuff happening that we didn't expect to happen. Cause I didn't expect to have a child <laughs> at seventeen, but it happened. So it made it even more important to pursued a documentary. So what was it, what was the voice inside of you telling you that made you want to be part of this and tell your story and be followed around and be subject to all this scrutiny? <laughs> I just like talking to them. I just like to get everything out. Like, we used to have studio sessions. I used to go over my journal entries and stuff like that. It was just a good outlet for me, so that's why I kept on doing it. And it was like, we became family almost. Like, we always talked about everything. In that, in that first sit-down conversation with, uh, with Daje off-camera, we were struck instantly by her energy, by her candor, by her insight, uh, by her outlook. Uh, we thought that she would be a wonderful guide into the school, quite frankly. She knew the dirt on everybody, and she knew everybody personally. And uh, we began adding her to the list of those who we were following around uh, town in uh, classrooms, in, uh, in their homes, in their, in their uh, playgrounds, in their churches, just to get a sense of where her life was and what she was doing. And, um, and then Daje's story began to emerge in ways that uh, filled out the nuances that we were hoping to develop for our story. She met a boy in high school within those first few months in the fall of 2013 that we uh, decided we would follow as well. They developed a relationship. Uh, Daje kept on a very determined path to try and graduate through some very difficult challenges. And the boy himself chose to withdraw from school and make some other choices that were not quite as optimistic or as successful as Daje's. Along the way, the two of them became pregnant. Uh, we were filming the film for a year when Mike Brown was shot in Ferguson. And while we did not make a Ferguson film, we recognized instantly as these kids watched the Mike Brown protests unfold in their classrooms and in their living rooms at home, this was an immediate 
echo of their own lives, of their own uh, opportunities, of the way that they saw themselves and how they were viewed by the world. This shit been going down in history for so fucking long, but this ain't the first time this shit happened to us. It's just crazy. It just reached the break point. Wow, that was a lot of events that went by just then. What, Dajay, I saw you make a motion when they just first mentioned the boy. Oh, like, <laughs> what, what was that about? What were you feeling just then? I don't like talking about him sometimes. I'm curious talking about specifically the school because that's what brought you into this film in the, in the beginning. How do you think that being in that second high school kind of affected your life? I think it made my life better. In the St. Louis public schools, like, you don't feel like it's a family there. Like, but when you come to this school, they, they like, nurture you. Like, if you ain't got it going on at home, you come to school and get you get that love or that support that you need to carry right. on, like, every day. It's not that many people that actually make it out of the borough. And then at the same time, you always got that one. He got out. He survived. Everybody talking about they want to get out of here. He made it out. Why can't you? But I think it's like a family-oriented school where everybody love each other, where everybody there for each other. Even when you graduate, they still there, like for any kids, like not just me. Like they help. Um, it was another girl who was behind too, so they let us stay at school till like eight o'clock at night, finishing like virtual learning and stuff like that. Yeah, we worked together and we graduated. Like we did everything till like eight o'clock at night. Can you think of a, a specific time when you maybe were at a turning point? It seemed like too much. You might have dropped out of that school, but they were with you, like you said, like a family. Uh, I never thought about like dropping out of school. Okay, I always like like going to school, but I always like being a class clown. So I always end up getting put out of school or suspended for something so stupid. But yeah, they always let me back before the ten days. So yeah, <laughs> there there are several moments in this film, Nancy, where uh, Dajay is on the verge of giving up. When we have shown this film, dropping out of school? No, never thought about dropping out of school. But like. Just like saying, forget the grades and stuff. But I was never going to drop out of school. There was never a thought that registered in my mind because I got a son on the way. Even when I didn't, I was never thinking about dropping out of school. That wasn't me. But I thought about, like, oh, I'm just going to, i just wait till i just do it next year, you know. I thought about just getting So postponing and, it. Yeah, just finishing next year. But I never thought about dropping out of school, ever, just to correct that. One of the remarkable uh, steps we've had along the journey of, of taking this film to film festivals across the country and around the world, we had a chance to meet through the Tribeca Film Festival with inmates at a correctional center in upstate New York. Uh, a small group of uh, the male inmates had chosen this film to be a part of a program that they called Profiles in Courage and Resiliency. So Dajay and the, uh, another director and I had a chance to meet with these inmates, lifers, bank robbers, and show the entire 90-minute film. What happened at the end of that film? When um, we was out there, the film, they show, they turned the lights off and stuff like that. So when they turned the lights on, like, the whole population of the prisoners was crying. They was like, yeah, it was crazy because they, like, 
they come from all walks of life. Like, they murderers, killers, drug dealers, all type of stuff. So, and then one man said, we never thought we could learn so much from a little girl. Like, and I was just like, dang, like, did I really make all these men cry? Like, just from my little story, you know what I'm saying? So it was like, it felt good to see how they felt and stuff like that because I never knew, like, I could put such an effect on a grown, they grown men. Like, they come from all walks of life, so. They recognized in the film two things that were pretty key. One of them was there were mentors in her life who didn't give up on her even when it appeared that she wanted to give up on herself. So that solidified, but you will be graduating. Yay, mommy! Uh, and at the same time, there are moments in our documentary where uh, Daje's high school boyfriend is in the workhouse and he's locked up and he's calling her on the telephone. And he's this disembodied voice and the inmates saw in him their own reactions and the effect that it had on wives and girlfriends and mothers back home. And they talked about knowing for the first time what damage they had done in the lives of others and how hard that was for them to re-experience. We've talked a little bit about the kind of the school effect on your life and a bit about the effect of the guy that's kind of the counterpoint in this story. But another part of this film covers the ways in which your mom's an important figure in your life. What's your relationship with her? She wants the best for me. So when I end up getting pregnant, I told her she was like real disappointed. She didn't talk to me for a long time after that, like. We couldn't sit down and have a conversation. I couldn't walk in her room like I normally do and talk to her. So that that um, that one incident kind of made our relationship fall apart a little bit, but we end up, like, getting back on that level, even though she get mad at me about a lot of stuff. like. But I think it made us stronger because now I understand how she was feeling about me, like, because I feel the same way about my kids. I don't want them to get pregnant at 17 or he get a girl pregnant at 17, so I kind of feel where she coming from. How disappointed she was. Because I was athletic. I could have, you know what I'm saying, made a good athletic career, but I ended up doing that. So it sounds like that getting pregnant and having your son has affected your life yeah. in many ways. Um, you know, you mentioned that it makes you know some of what your mother went through, but also mm-hmm. it limited some of your options, mm-hmm. like the athletic career. What, All in all, how how has the experience of having a baby Changed two. your life. <laughs> what? No, I got two. You got but, you have two now. Yeah, I got a daughter now. <laughs> okay, but it's so it's it's like it's not easy. It's like real hard. But you got to think about them before you think about anything else. They most important. Whatever you do, you think about them first before you move out. You think about them first before you go get something to eat. Think about them before you do like. Okay, when I go to work, like. They, like, always end up crying and stuff like that. So I just be like, oh, I don't feel like going to work and this, this, and that. But I got to think about I got to go make money for them, for them to eat, for them to be clothed, all that type of stuff. Like, So I was supposed to go to college, but I end up just postponing it because, like, being a mama a lot, and people don't understand that when they don't have children. So me going to school, me working, and me having two babies, that's hard, and people don't understand that. Jeff, you had said something about how you wanted for people to get to get to know someone who whose life is the result of some failed policies. Tell me more about that. Like, what are the failed policies that you wanted to focus on 
the film asks viewers to consider a couple of different things. Number one, the zero tolerance policies that continually put kids out of schools across the country, not just in Missouri. Uh, infractions such as uh, talking back or bringing weapons into school or uh, bringing uh, drugs into school, a number of things, fights off-site uh, off of the school property can get a student suspended. The question is, can that student then restart his or her life and get it back on track? And what happens to them if they don't? The film follows one mm -hmm. young boy in addition to Daje, uh, her high school boyfriend, who makes some missteps and finds himself face-to-face uh, -face with the criminal justice system. And at age 17, he is charged in adult court with uh, driving a stolen car. And he is given probation. Uh, the question should be asked about whether it's appropriate to judge a 17-year-old in adult court and what's the extent of the punishment settled, uh, handed him and uh, what then becomes the um, burden he places on his own shoulders by pleading guilty. Several kids who take guilty pleas do so because they think it will just get the problem away from in front of them without realizing that this then becomes something that they're settled with the rest of their life. Uh, in the young boy's case, he is given probation uh, for three years, and long after the film wrapped and began to make its way around the world at film festivals, he violated his probation. And now at 20, he is serving seven years in adult prison for a first offense of being a passenger in a stolen car. Did he know what he was doing when he said yes and he, he pled guilty? Did he properly understand? Was it appropriate for him to be charged uh, in adult court with that sort of a crime? These are other questions that are asked. Daje lives in a very uh, impoverished neighborhood. So she's essentially starting three or four steps behind the starting block and trying to create a better life for herself and the son that she's brought into it. She and her peers watched Michael Brown shooting and then the Ferguson uprisings and the aftermath unfold. Can you talk a little bit about those moments and what that was like for you, seeing the kind of news media portrayal of Michael Brown's death and then what it was like to be you at that time? Oh, when I first seen it, I think we was in school. It was the first day of your senior year. And I was still pregnant, so I was mad because I was like, I don't want to bring a son into this world and all this stuff going on. Like, when he get older, can he walk down the street without being bothered? You know what I'm saying? Like, getting looked at the wrong way or somebody calling and say they feel threatened by him because he black. You know, like, I just didn't feel, you know what I'm saying? I, I want the girl. Like, I didn't want to have a boy, you know, because it's just too much stuff happening to boys nowadays. Like, a lot of my friends, they black boys. They died when they was like 15 and 16. I ain't want to have to be scared or have to bury my son. It's going to be too much. It was just the fact that I was thinking about him when he got older, like how people was going to look at him when he grew up and was a man, you know, because they don't look at black men positive like that in America. What do those fears, how do they affect the way you're parenting and that you're going to parent him, the things you're going to tell him? Um, as a young black man growing up? Um, I try to, like, teach him stuff before, like, because he's not in school. He's not supposed to be in school till he turns four. So I teach him stuff before he get to school, like his ABCs. I just want him to be, like, more advanced to know. Like, I teach him about a lot of stuff, even though he probably don't understand. So, like, I will try to just teach him a positive way, like, don't do this, don't do that, or don't act out, or, you know what I'm saying, like, 
Because I don't want nobody looking at him no way, no type of way, that, you know what I'm saying, in a negative way. So I try to raise him positive so he can be looked at in a positive way and he, you know what I'm saying, carry himself positive and stuff like that. Does it make you want to change society so that he doesn't have to act in in extraordinary ways just to stay alive? Yeah, I try. But who am I to change society and nobody else trying to change society? I'm only one person. It's people out here that got way higher power than me. Like, I try to tell everybody, don't do this or don't do that around him. So the way I'm raising him, he can stay on that path and he won't get mixed up because y'all doing something different and I'm doing this, you know. So, yeah, I try to change what's around, but I'm one person. I can't change what the world see him as or how they going to see him as when he get older. That was Daje Shelton and filmmaker Jeff Truesdale talking about the documentary For Akeem. And this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast, produced by Willis Ryder Arnold. And Nancy Fowler, with help from our editor, David Casares. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. St. Louis Public Radio's podcast series, Cut and Paste, is made possible by space architects, designers, and builders, creating St. Louis's favorite spaces. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.